This is Swampside Chance, a podcast where communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. In this episode, we complete our conversation with Nick on Really Existing Nationalisms by Erica Benner. does a really ingenious thing by connecting the critique of democratic right that the early young Hegelian Marx has in on the Jewish question to the political writings. And again, you know, all stripes of Marxists are guilty of positing that 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 early young Hegelian, you know, uh, the author calls him the pre-communist Marx, you know, that has nothing to do with his later writings. Uh, you could just lop that off and you don't have to read that shit to understand Marx and Engels at all. But she essentially sees this, you know, critique of a right to self-determination as an application of, you know, a critique of this abstract democratic right in the state that doesn't actually result in a, you know, material concrete, uh, improvement of you know um, improvement of conditions and you know it isn't stemming from you know the the real situation isn't actually looking to overlapping interests to build freedom in reality as opposed mm. to just asserting it in the abstract um yeah and at the end of the day why would you think that a formal national independence would make you more free if formal freedoms in their first place don't necessarily increase the freedom or 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 whatever of a situation like it's funny that people see the young and the later marx in isolation world as, as separate and calling themselves marxists because if you like take the historical materialist method seriously you shouldn't take anything as an isolated unit in history without looking at what preceded it and how it built up to it but yeah there's all stripes of marxists that do this i mean you know, this, I don't know. Obviously, in the literature at the time, this was much more controversial. But yes, the early Marx is the same guy, as it turns out. <laughs> um, I wanted to read a little snatch from um, 168 about, you know, uh, rights and, you know, the idea of national determination. It, just basically, like, taking this building it all, building all these criteria into a critique of the Rice framework for national self-determination. So page 168 in my volume. <clears throat> the idea that national self-determination should be granted as a matter of right has sometimes encouraged a single-minded and undiscriminating focus on independence. To say that agents have a right to something is to say, first of all, that their interest in that thing is such that it cannot be overridden by competing interests or goals, except in the most unusual circumstances. Second, rights impose obligations or duties on other agents to grant the thing claimed by the right bearer. The first aspect of rights tends to insulate nationalist claims from the wider context of political judgment. The second 
places responsibility for meeting those claims on agents rather than nationalist leaders themselves, while saying very little about the responsibility of those leaders towards their own constituency or other states and nations. Since the relationship between national self-determination and individual rights has never been clearly defined, nationalists who build their case on rights have tended to stress the collective and external dimensions of self-determination at the expense of its internal prerequisites. Marx and Engels gave no systematic thought to the idea that national groups groups have a right to self-determination, mainly because the philosophical and legal applications of this idea remained underdeveloped in their lifetimes. Nevertheless, Marx's early critique of a rights-based approach to political emancipation suggests grounds for an an analogous critique of a narrowly rights-based approach understanding of national self-determination. We need not share Marx's unduly dismissive view of rights to accept his central point that when oppressed people view their plight through a purely national lens and see their nation primarily as a bearer of rights which demand redress from others, they may fail to confront the sources of oppression and conflict that reside within their own society. At the same time, the language of rights is largely silent on the question of how formerly deprived and dejected peoples might be integrated into a network of supportive international relationships. This silence, rather than any built-in adversarial content of rights, reinforces the nationalist tendency to see other nations as potential oppressors and threats. Yeah. Uh, Nationalists have been known to invoke a right of self-determination to justify acts of internal repression and international violence that do not directly affect the oppressor state, violence against minorities, weaker neighbors, or civilians. Such acts fuel repetitive cycles of national conflict and make it difficult for weaker nations to achieve either security or respectful recognition abroad. So I, yeah, this author's a genius. Just, just saying. Yeah, yeah, that's very, that's very, very well put. And I think cuts the Gordian knot on a lot of like discourse around this whole issue. Yeah. Manages to like do the, like, I don't know, Marxist humanist, like Hegelian bong rip to like the connect the pragmatic political writings to the, you know, more abstract theoretical writings and intervenes in a sort of, in a contemporary political you know discourse at the same time like in a couple paragraphs really succinct and amazing um yeah in the mid 90s in the mid 90s when everyone was scrambling their brains um yeah but you know i guess from the from the zeros or or i'm sorry from the from the 20s we've got no place to talk uh that's probably not even the most important chapter in a way, in a way that the next chapter is probably like where, where the, these criterion are applied is probably the most important chapter. And that's uh, rescuing internationalism. And so, yeah. Yeah. yeah so it, it starts out, it's basically talking about the problem Marx and Engels analyzing, particularly British imperialism uh, in India and it starts out by situating their vantage point. They're writing about a lot of this stuff based upon newspaper reports and parliamentary debates. And so on some level, some of their lack of discourse about what was going on and what, you know, any prescriptive advice for the Indian working class, such as it was, wasn't there just because there wasn't a lot of information. 
this is where their stuff is on some level. I think in a benign sense, Eurocentric, simply because like Europe was the thing they had the most information to write about. Um, and particularly because a lot of their stuff about it was being written in, I think, the was it the New York Daily Herald? Was that the name of the paper? I think uh, it was, it was for an Ameri- the Herald, yeah. Yeah, it was for an American audience, and Marx was essentially a colonist uh, speaking to a contemporary audience that wasn't uh, wasn't like the radical left, like his original newspaper. So you have to kind of read it through that lens. Yeah, and it's also, even if Marx was trying to write something for, like, independent, for people in India, for people in the like growing Indian proletariat, or like, people involved in these independent struggles within India, there's pretty much no one there who... I might be wrong about this. I don't think there was anyone at the time there who really knew who Marx was. And if they did, there's no real reason for them to care what this dude had to say. He hadn't done anything. Right. That would give them a reason to. So why? So it's probably a good thing he wasn't trying to write prescriptive advice for them because, like... Presumably he recognized yeah, he wasn't in any position to do it. Yeah, and a lot of this stuff is about um, the ambiguity that Marx expressed in print towards the products of British colonialism and how he saw that, while it was tremendously barbaric and in ways destructive, sometimes historically destruction can lead to growth and regeneration, even if it's brutal and nasty, right? Um yeah, I think it is important to recognize that in, like, I re- I reread the main writing, this main bit of writing he had on India that this is drawing from. I think it is important to, despite what people always quote about the bits where he's defending British imperialism, it is important to, the whole thing does come back to the point that ultimately this, anything good that comes with this, it's good because it in, may create new possibilities for people in India to fight for their own liberation, both against the British and their own historic ruling class. He always does keep an eye on that kind of driving point, while at the same time, a big part of what's gone into here is the fact that he's having it, attacking like the kind of liberal attitude that was happy with everything that got up to that point, but then was acting shocked and aghast when like a formal colonialism started when informally it had already penetrated the entirety of these sections of India that were the subject of debate at the time yeah there is there is something about like you can almost say a similar thing to the United States where there is this you can't even enter the conversation as a thing to conceivably do for us to just say annex Iraq or annex Afghanistan it's completely unthinkable even though, like, we can bomb the shit out of them, like, we can kill half a million people, we can ruin their economy for generations to come, but for us to just, like, put an American flag and say, this is America now, like, oh, we, that's that's unthinkable. That's a line we could never cross, um, which is, you know, sniff, sniff, pure ideology. Yeah, and sort of the debate that he's intervening in and being a smug edge lord about and, and trying to, you know, dialectically not just, like, take a side on is one between people that were like, yeah, let's, you know, do formal imperialism that rules. And people that are like, yeah, you know, we did all this stuff already, but like, you know what we should do is we should give, uh, rule in India back to their old ruling princes and stuff like, yeah, let's do that. Um, 
So that's sort of the perspective where, <laughs> where a lot of the edgelord stuff from Marx is coming from. Um, he, of course, there's a book called The Reactionary Mind, which focuses on the way that reactionaries tend to say that they are punching up at elites in a way that how do I put this in, in a way that, you know, ends up downstream, you know, harming, uh, you know, subaltern peoples and punching down, um, the way that Marx is articulating himself is I think more sincerely towards punching the elites and, you know, when, whenever there is, how do I say this? <clears throat> whenever there is like a, a portion where Marx actually appraises what the British did in India, he says is you know barbaric. <laughs> like he's not he's not just like punching at the libs in a way to you know kind of discredit the Indian national movement. Um, it's it's important to make that distinction, and it's you know. I don't know. That kind of edgelording is like a little dangerous, but it's understandable why he did it and why, you know, we're going to have to continue to punch at libs that cry crocodile tears over the atrocities that they did because they want to put a symbolic bandaid over it. If you look at his stuff on India, there is some stuff that he talks about, like Asiatic societies and, you know, the undignified, stagnatory and vegetative village life and all that stuff. But again, though, that's I really think, though, that is I mean, there is a certain level of caricature there that I think is largely based on a pot, like a lack of information that just has just exists because really, it's mid 19th century. But the other thing is he also that's just him also talking about peasants like he doesn't exactly paint the most flattering portrait of European peasants either. Yeah, this is definitely, it definitely cuts across like, you know, like the European and, you know, Asiatic zones for Marx, but it's still, you know, as a consequence, cuts Eurocentric because, you know, yeah, Marx is for, for, in a, like, for this economic modernization to a degree. And that does mean, uh, like, you're talking about something that has its roots in Europe and, you know, that kind of modernization is something you're for. It's not hard to see why some people, you know, read Marx as, you know, this kind of like Asiatic torpor was, you know, anything was justified in ripping it up, no matter how atrocious. Like, it's not like a totally bonkers read. It's just like, it's a consistent read of some of the texts, of some of the letters, some of the articles. It is a consistent read of some of those articles, but if you try to weave it into his broader corpus, like you yeah. can see how that falls apart. I I think one interesting thing is that Marx has a really good understanding of what the thought process of the political class in America and England is about why they're doing what they're doing or what they're getting from it. And so can like really clearly see the hypocrisy of like different sections, but also he doesn't really have a very good understanding of what's actually going on in India, and that can kind of explain to a degree why some of the stuff he says about Asiatic torpor, yada yada yada, doesn't really add up 
so much, while at the same time his criticism of this kind of phony respect for some kind of formal in Indian independence is pretty much bang on the money. Because I think it's important to remember that his main source for the kind of economic resources he was developed his theory of like the Asiatic mode of production of was an East India trading company like accountant or I can't remember what particular position he was in. He wasn't like a very trustworthy or useful source, but he was generally the best Marx had to work with. But there is there there is in I mean these are class societies, so there is is within them deeply reactionary elements that you know like look at like Japan for instance, right? Japan is an instance of they approached modernization maybe from one of up until that point in history nobody I don't think had ever produced it approached it as a ruling class as rationally as it did in Japan where they literally just went everywhere and tried to step by step copy everyone else's homework and fast track to be a competitive imperial power um, and when they did that they yeah they were able to reach a point where they were able to not only militarily defend themselves but come to dominate all of their neighbors uh, within their immediate vicinity and create their own sphere of influence but there was also within the society these deeply reactionary mystical elements that you could see parallels to you know German fascism that ended up getting power and leading to humanitarian disaster right so like there, there is and that's not necessarily it takes a different form in asian society that if you talk about it can look very like orientalist and oh look at the sneaky asian man you know but it's there's clear parallels that you have in marx's own society of germany and in europe it just is a different form yeah and um the readings that we've done by samir amin and jarius banaji on Rearticulating historical materialism to be less Eurocentric and to like root out this, you know, notion of, you know, an Asiatic mode of production and to make this more, you might say, scientific is a worthwhile goal. And like, this isn't to defend all of what Marx is, what, what Marx says, because, you know, Marx is a man of his time seems to believe in some base level of biological racialism that like a lot of people did. Um, so there's, 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 you know, there's some elements to his work that aren't worth defending, but as a, you know, as a corpus, like, I don't know. I think the author is right to be defensive. Like there's, there's a lot here, especially by the time you get to the Irish turn that Marx, you know, will later, apply to india it's the basis of you know a lot of uh modern you know like anti-imperialist politics in 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 its most virtuous form i feel it's interesting how you can almost say there's a point where it's like marx is constantly look out for alternative national roots to socialism as early as 1850 he acknowledged somewhat apprehensively that chinese socialism may stand in the same relation to the european variety as chinese philosophy stands to the hegelian um which kind of almost seems like it predicts Maoism. <laughs> well, yeah, if you read, yeah, like, uh, and Mao is, you know, famously kind of unfamiliar with a lot of Marx. Like Mao is, you know, much more influenced by the anarchists and was turned Marxist by like Stalin and, you know, Lenin and that sort of thing. But like, yeah, more or less ends up like you know, doing like a, 
you know, like re reading, ends up reading like Chinese philosophy through the lens of dialectics. Yeah. Yeah, and also if you take seriously the view that, like, the conditions for communism, for socialism, for liberation, for whatever, develop through the development of society itself, although not in a passive sense where it's inevitable, or deterministic sense maybe, it's a better term, you do have to think about, well, okay, there's going to be a different path in different sections of the world where society has developed in slightly different ways. It's not going to be a matter in the same way you can't design a utopia in your mind like the utopian socialists wanted to and then impose it on a particular society you can't develop it in like one part of the world and then immediately transpose it onto another it doesn't really make sense for the same reasons should we move on to the irish question uh i think we should because that's um that's where the second criterion is relaxed a bit and we have, I don't know, like, and the Irish question is also where Engels starts to kind of, especially towards the end of his life, um, you know, recognize that there could be a more lasting kind of imperialist benefit to uh, nationalist movements that don't quite satisfy the first criterion. The author is quick to emphasize that it isn't the labor aristocracy theory, but it looks like it's kind of in that ballpark. He seems very, he gets increasingly pessimistic about the political capacities of the English working class, and, and he sees the extent to which they've been integrated into the existent like British imperial order, um, and how, how that plays into longstanding Irish, uh, British ethnic tensions and how they, they literally become exacerbated in such a way that is in a tangible way very self-defeating for the English working class, but they still see it, I guess, in like their prudential interest to support like this imperialist nationalist project of England. Yeah, and like, you don't have to adopt the labor aristocracy theory to recognize that there are short-term interests within like the imperial center in different countries that make it real hard for them to see their longer-term interests in siding with the working class of oppressed nations. Like, but that doesn't mean there is no interest there at all. It's just you're going to have to work hard to draw it out and the struggle might have to progress a bit before it becomes readily apparent to them. But you can't give up on it either. Yeah, and what sucks is, you know, like Marx observes, yeah, the way that these intra-proletarian resentments uh, can be not... can actually undermine solidarity as a result of in economic insecurity right so it seems like there's almost a certain spot where uh, rather than fostering solidarity or fostering uh, a sense of maybe like sort of uh, liberal beneficence or whatever it the, the everyone's gotta i gotta hold on to what i have mentality and so that ends up fueling these and these ethnic and nationalistic conflicts that everybody and participates in this race to the bottom that ends up just fucking themselves over in the long run. What's interesting here is that there's also grounds that the author is working from to suggest that Marx really didn't have a theory that says, Oh, revolution must come from the sparks of revolution must come from the, uh, capitalist core. There's no way that revolution could be sparked 
you know, outside of the capitalist core, you know, as early as the 1860s and 70s, he recognizes this. And I'm quoting from the book, um, my page 188. Whereas in 1848, they had urged nationalists to adjust their goals to those of revolutionaries and hegemonic countries and to view their nation's independence as simply one facet of a global movement towards social emancipation in the 1860s and 70s, Marx relaxed these strong international conditions on movements within the oppressed nations. If the working classes in the dominant countries were unwilling to liberate themselves by opposing foreign oppression then the revolutionary impulse had to come from the oppressed nations themselves. In such circumstances, Marx came to argue, the achievement of national independence might be a prior condition for social reform and progressive international alliances, not just a means of pursuing these broader objectives. That's quite different than the image of Marx one tends to get, especially um, from a certain Leninist point of view, that, you know, it was Lenin that came up with the with the kind of great idea that, you know, the spark could come from outside. That's like manifestly not true when you're looking at Marx's uh, writings on, uh, you know, his like latter exchange with uh, Vera Sasulish, I think, on, on the Russian communes and stuff like that towards the end of his life. And I think, honestly, this might be the case, you know, in a lot of the international protest waves that we see, it's coming from a much more desperate and dire situation than in the imperial core. Arguably, even within the imperial core, the actual sparks of protest come from the either the peripheral or the, you know, more oppressed, like subaltern, like parts of the core. So, I mean, some, if you take something like an internal colony thesis when looking at black America, for instance, and you see the way that like, the movement for black freedom against like cops murdering them in the streets, you know, had an impact on, you know, the real movement in, in the nation as a whole. It, this is pretty much the dynamic. Like you don't see it coming from the metropole when, you know, there's Occupy Wall Street. It doesn't necessarily actually like move everybody. And it's interesting. You mentioned earlier, like CDME, when we're talking about make the more like left, the more really universal or less Eurocentric vision of historical materialism. It kind of is similar to the picture he paints in his book, Eurocentrism, about how capitalism developed and how it didn't actually develop from the heart of the previous mode of production. It developed from a weird backwater of Europe that didn't really behave like the rest of the Trinity mode of production and was kind of irrelevant because, the, also, because among other things, like the logics of that mode of production, the territory mode, weren't as strongly in place there. It was more weak, it was more broken down, and so a new social relations could build there in a way they couldn't build in like the Ottoman Empire or the Chinese Empire or one of these great tributary state systems before and so something new could develop and overtake it then from outside and break it down and bring a new mode. Yeah, that's a good point. There's um we could go into the sort of quotes about um like proto-labor aristocracy thesis or whatever. I don't know how to characterize it, but the uh, the way that the English working class was demonstrating how important that first criterion is. And, you know, this chapter really makes the case that that's the big one. Like, 
you gotta like be able to make that case plausibly to the you know english working class that they're like their interests are actually aligned with you know say the irish working class and, instead of uh you know instead of like vice versa i think it's definitely making that argument and that makes it well but it's also interesting that many people in the irish like nationalist movement were at the same time make or the left wing of it were making the argument for essentially the second criteria of social reform to the movement of whole like as a whole in ireland i mentioned this earlier on today but it's like i can't remember which ones but there were leaders of like the socialist wing of the irish nationalist movement saying look we can't just deal with the english we have to deal with our own capitalists as well otherwise we're just going to get remain like enslaved to english banks or to banks abroad the capitalist abroads and the landlords even the, once we've got the union jack down from all our buildings once even we've turfed them out you actually see in terms of the irish situation later on um there's a good movie about the period um the wind that shakes the barley where a lot of it is debates about what it is they're actually doing this for and you see as they gain some success like the left wing sections arguing for land reform explicitly and how we need to have like this cooperative commonwealth, otherwise all of this is meaningless. But yeah, you see that in pretty much every national liberation struggle. There comes to be this increasing question of what kind of society are we trying to build by overthrowing the people who are oppressing us. And that is and that's something that Marx is tremendously concerned about watching the the political jockeying within uh, the Irish movement. And he's, but also in terms of maintaining those lines to the English working class, he was very concerned about uh, terroristic efforts essentially undermining any like kindlings of solidarity that could be stoked that were developing uh, within the British working class. I think he refers to an incident where there was this bombing to break some people out of prison. Yeah, the, the Finian emissaries, so let's see. So from the bottom of 194, inadequately reforming program would need, Marx argued, to launch a far-reaching agrarian revolution aimed at correcting the distortions inflicted on the Irish economy by British colonists, as well as expelling the latter. Wary that resort to violent methods could deprive Irish nationalists of crucial foreign support and destroy prospects of a future alliance with English workers, Marx also urged tactical restraint in the interests of international reciprocity. When the Fenians? God, I'm going to say that as Fenians. When the Fenians set off an explosion at a London prison in 1867 in an attempt to free imprisoned comrades, Marx opined that this was a very stupid thing. The London masses who have shown sympathy for Ireland will be made wild by it and driven into the arms of the government, government party. One cannot expect Lond the London proletarians to allow themselves to be blown up in honor of the Fenian, um, sorry, Fenian emissaries. These strictures notwithstanding, Marx sympathized strongly with the demands for the release of Irish political prisoners and spent several years campaigning for the cause of Irish amnesty in the First International. Ultimately, what Marx, or what Marx wanted was he understood there would have to be some kind of separation before there was some kind of refederation. Which suggests that there is maybe in in these pro in these projects of like ideally when working class people get power and there's a question of how these things are to be arranged, there is this kind of you see within all this stuff, there's a process of building common interests and building trust between people. And part of that, 
you could see would be a situation where you have to let them break off and be their own thing in order to disrupt this exploitative relationship that's taking place that has drawn the working class in uh, with the ruling class of its own country against this outgroup of this other ethnicity, race, or nation. And so for those reasons, like the Nat- National Liberation Project is essential, literally essential. It was literally the highest duty of the Irish to be nationalist first in this instance as a result of that. Yeah, and that's a sentiment that's usually attributed to Lenin, even by me, and certainly by many anti-colonial revolutionaries. Um, you know, uh, people. You know, like from like Fanon to uh, Jimmy Durham. You know, there's always the sentiment that you know, reading Marx did nothing for me. Reading Lenin did something. Like, you know, that's what made me a Marxist because it brought out this look. You're not going to feel. You're not going to like be able to work out the cl- your you know local class relations until you can cast off the you know imperialists and actually deal with you know your own ruling class and unbeknownst even to me that there are elements of marx's work which actually like prefigure this rather strongly and perhaps in clearer better terms than the right of self-determination framework you get from lenin i was going to say i think it really goes to show the long-term effect that quote-unquote official Marxism as exported first by the common turn and then by the Soviet Union and by different means has had on how we understand like not just Marxism as a general concept but the works of Marx specifically like it's had a really distorting effect that even today it's not we're not really out of the weeds of it it's hard to overstate that part of the problem though is especially as cap like as imperialism expands and capitalism expands and becomes more global this is the contradictions you've seen later where you can overthrow the colonialists but they never really go away because you have to accommodate yourself to some kind of global hierarchy of states and so you're going to be dealing with similar strictures as a nation regardless of whether you have the boot directly on your neck or not and that's something that we still don't haven't exactly accounted for there's a part do you want to talk a little more about Ireland, or do you want to move on to the First International? Yeah, let's talk, let's talk about the First International. This is a maybe like the most important part of the book for me. This is the uh, fifth part of the book that's also the most important. There's, they're all... <laughs> yeah, they're just getting more and more important at every stage, you know? Let's see, yeah, so a lot of this is about... It's talking about how Marx was trying to... He was drafted to... Uh, I think write the uh, the inaugural address to like the the first international and of the international the fir- of the International Market Rights Association 1864. Um, he was drawn in. Uh, the council was frustrated trying to draft a program that was capable of bridging all of these things together because while there weren't a bunch of parties in it, there were a bunch of different groupings. He had Manzian Manzinian Republicans, moderate trade unionists, French anarcho syndicalists, and a, a this whole this whole lump of different perspectives that Marx was trying to create this ecumenical or, or trying to steer this organization in an ecumenical direction whereby it could be this site for negotiation between these different sectional elements of the workers' movement throughout Europe by which they could have these have these conversations and debates and again develop maybe trust and common interests and affinity that would allow them to cohere as a broader uh, international 
movement or Asian international class in the same way that the ruling class had already by this point realized their common interests across nation and developed ways by which they could you know, gamify either through war or other national maneuverings, situations where they retain their power. So if there's a workers' uprising, um, the ruling class in one country goes to the ruling class in another country and has them come and crush their own people. Um, and so, you know, this is basically, I think I wrote my notes just mar- for page 200, uh, Marx versus the globalists. You know, <laughs> we're not standing for the globalists, folks. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, there's a... Uh... There's a great passage kind of dealing with Marx and the LaSalle current in the First International. Just kind of like. Just connecting what we were talking about in the previous section. um, About the upgrading of separatist nationalism. I'll read from the bottom of 197. The upgrading of separatist nationalism within his internationalist strategy stemmed in large part from Marx's growing apprehensions about the capacity of workers to act in spontaneous global unison against international alliances of absolutist and bourgeois conservatism. His concern that a zest for empire had infected the national outlook of English workers was echoed in his writings on Germany in the same period. For a decade after the 1848 revolutions, the German workers' movement languished under the heavy hand of reaction in Prussia. When it When it emerged as a distinct political force after 1859, the international scene was dominated by the struggle between Prussia and Austria for German hegemony. In 1862, Bismarck, Prussia's new, newly appointed chancellor, vowed to unify Germany by blood and iron after the Diet refused to grant army credits for his annexationist plans. Hoping to exploit this intergovernmental conflict to gain concessions for German workers, the socialist leader Ferdinand LaSalle offered to solicit working-class support for Bismarck's scheme in exchange for state-aided cooperatives and universal suffrage. The chancellor declined the offer, but LaSalle's strategy of cutting deals with the political right, as well as his preference for a Prussian solution to the problem of German unification continued to attract social democratic leaders until his death in 1864. Um, <laughs> so Mar- Marx took particular expression to the overtones of cultural superiority in LaSalle's view of the German nation, which combined fix, uh, which, okay. Um, although the exiled Mark had little influence on the German workers movement at the time, he and Engels expanded their correspondence with LaSalle's successors in hopes of steering them away from Bismarck's great Prussian policy, arguing that the realistic politics, quote, of LaSalle's deal-making, in fact, lacked any real basis in the interests of German workers. Marx dismissed LaSalle as a quack savior whose nationalist doctrines offered a false panacea for the sufferings of the masses. But the pressures inducing leaders of the German workers' movement to accommodate themselves to existing circumstances proved far less transient than Marx had envisaged. Bismarck's successful wars of unification in 1866 and 1870 shattered Marx's hopes of forging German unity from below on the basis of a liberal democratic program which would renounce future hegemonic ambitions and relinquish old claims on Polish territory. So... This is uh, this is the setup for where Marx is coming from in the First International. This is like it's basically between 
these Lasal like this uh, sort of Lasallian legacy and the Bakuninist, you know, strategy of ignoring the state and try well, not ignoring, but you know, not organizing for reform within the state or or you know, angling towards the state at all, except as an attack. Um, of course, that necessitates a sort of like conspiratorial secret society style of organizing that the author claims is just as harmful as any statism um, in the socialist movement. But, um, but it's between these poles that Marx is trying to draft an internationalist policy. Um, yeah, the, the author praises him for finding a way to try and keep these... The author seems to imply that it's a miracle that he held all these people together for as long as he did. You know, that, that his efforts, far from being something that, you know, destabilized and ruined it, was actually very much aimed at trying to create... Again, trying to create a space where the different tendencies and leaders of the working class movement throughout Europe could come together and try to begin to conceptualize moving things at a continental level and to overcome... Uh, basically being playthings of being drawn into these different sectional interests by the ruling classes of their respective countries and to counter the, the globalism of the uh, <laughs> ruling elites. Uh, yeah. There's, there's even a sort of like note here about the rights and duties that are in this, in this speech, because like other than a reference to rights and duties, which, you know, I don't actually have a problem with, you know, rights or whatever, but you know, Marx certainly did. Um, this is probably a better expression of Marx's politics than the manifesto. I, I, you know, like vote, like being able to participate in elections without regard to race or sex was like far more like democratically radical than, you know, most of the demands being put forward in the 10 planks in the manifesto, for instance. Yeah. So Marx notably wasn't involved with the beginning of the international but was kind of like brought in. Yeah. So then I guess there's an outbreak of, let's see, uh, this kind of outbreak of war is an outbreak of war in 1870 between France and Prussia. And they kind of lean into supporting like a limited kind of conditional support for Prussia, uh, for a few different reasons. Yeah. And so this is where the author brings in Bakunin, right? Is that like Bakunin kind of thought that given the sort of, emphasis that Marx and Engels have on an open democratic like organizing towards reform as being like <clears throat> you know the form of the movement that this would lend itself too much to holding on to the the gains made within the framework of the national state and kind of sucker the workers movement into supporting their respective nations in a, a looming international conflict, which is a, you know, a haunting critique, right? The question of the conquest of political power, Bakunin was very much against. You, you sort of see how Marx is hoping that, again, you know, this is something you see in Lenin. Like he hoped that the breakout of these wars would cause people to lose their chauvinistic illusions, but history didn't seem to work out that way, which leads well into the next chapter where that talks a lot about how people uh, conceptualize nationalism and how this how the seeming persistence of it gives it gives pe in people a sense of it's this 
almost the way sometimes people like uh, Tyce Coates or whatever view racism in America, where it's just this this Tanahasi Coates. Thank you. That uh, it's like this phantom that just like lurks inside of America and can be summoned at any moment. Um, they see the same thing with nationalism, where it's just this persistent, almost natural form of human affinity that will um, emerge at any given moment. Uh, precisely because of its historical persistence and that it didn't seem to be overcome maybe in the way that Marx or some of the uh, people on the more radical left predicted it would or hoped it would. Let's see. I want to take a vibes check here. We're about an hour and a half in. I feel like we should press forward and try to get to six unless there's a point you were trying to get to in this chapter. Yeah, I, 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 did, I did want to get to the point here that like um, – I mean first of all, the stuff on Marx and Bakunin, I mean it could be quoting at length. It's just like – just a, a really really great um read about like you know if you're not if you're not an anarchist and you think that you know the conquest of political power the economical emancipation of the working class by the conquest of political power as uh stated in the address in a and uh or as stated in uh 1871 actually um and you know that's the end in the inaugural uh, address of the International Workingmen's Association. Uh, if if you don't think that's the strategy, like that's one thing. But if you're still trying to hold on to this, this read is is pretty is a pretty vital defense of Marx's position, it, particularly because a big part of the reason why Marx and Engels support the German war effort at the time as when it um, breaks out with France or the, uh, the, you know, Prussian war effort and the Franco-Prussian war um, when it breaks out with France is because they believe it to be a defensive war, essentially that um, Bismarck successfully goads, you know, Napoleon the third into attacking them, right. Into attacking Prussia. And so is able to rally German nationalists that wouldn't have normally supported an aggressive war, including Marx and Engels at first. So the author's defense of Marx and Engels, you know, subsequent defense of German nationalism in a war as Biz as, as Bakunin predicted their position would lead to is important because without kind of reading every last bit, this fleeting display of national favoritism should not be seized upon as evidence that a dark undercurrent of German chauvinism distorted Marx and Engels' entire international perspective. Marx's constant battles with French sections of the First International had recently lowered his opinion of the workers' movement in France, and he believed that his own chances of exerting a moderating influence on the workers' movement, on the workers' response to the war, were better in Germany. The limited and provisional nature of his and Engels' pro-German stance is indicated by the strict conditions they placed on working-class support for Prussia. Such support should, they insisted, immediately be withdrawn if Russia departed from its declared war aim of self-defense and sought to annex Alais and Lorraine to Greater Germany. German workers, meanwhile, were exhorted to keep in mind the difference between German national and dynastic Prussian interests, retain close fraternal contact their French counterparts and oppose Prussian efforts to impose a conqueror's peace on France. When, when a worst case scenario materialized with Prussian victory, Marx took some solace in the fact that the German workers movement had consistently opposed Prussian aggrandizement and supported the popular French resistance 
briefly manifested in, in the Paris Commune, but the subsequent repression of workers' movements in both countries showed how little influence these movements were able to exert in this period over the course of interstate conflict. It's, you know, it's not all better. But, you know, Bakunin isn't just like an anti-Semitic clown, although he is an anti-Semitic clown. Uh, there is teeth to his critique of Marx in his uh, in State and Anarchy and in his writings against Marx in the International. Um, it's worth it as a Marxist to grapple with these things because it prefigures, you know, a lot of the problems that we run into. I mean, the the problem with Bakunin is more his his non-solution to the because he, you know, he identifies this tension of engaging with state power in some way because there are definitely there are major as we've seen things play out in history there are major perils to that but his solution to perform like a secret club of super friends who are gonna you know <laughs> give a wink and a nod at just the right moment and then step in and say uh sir you are no longer the state you are done and then, you know, like blow up the White House when everyone's not in the building or maybe when they are in the building. <laughs> uh, that's not like a viable solution. Yeah. At the, end of, at the end of the day, you can't like give the strategic ground to the state and to the nation, the capitalist class by like an unmitigated engagement with it. But also you can't just rely on your ability to take the reins at the last minute and abolish it. Yeah. Either. Or making, making like some yeah. kind of proletarian version of the Freemasons. And just hope that, and hope that well, the government somehow no, doesn't notice that you're doing that. Look, it's like some people on the anti-imperialist left think there's a Chinese Illuminati for good. You need a proletarian Illuminati for good. It'll be great. It will work out so well. Don't worry about it. Don't even stress. Yeah, don't. We're gonna worry. have secret handshakes. Yeah, it's gonna no, be so it's, fun. It's some. I swear, like some of that, some of that leftist dongism, that geism. It, it's, it's, uh, it's tanky Q. It's Q for tankies. You know, just like, <laughs> just stick, stick, just stick to the plan, okay? It's all playing out. Like all the capitalists have been are under secret trial tribunals right now by uh, neo Maoist military mm -hmm. courts. It's gonna be fine. <laughs> Although, I mean, he is actually doing anti corruption campaign like against literal billionaires, though. So there's more truth to it than Q. But anyway, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And Trump's putting the pedophiles you know. in jail. <laughs> yeah. You know, at the end of the day, Marxist delusions are always better or like more on the money than right wing delusions, a, even when they're still it is horribly actually wrong. Also, the truth, like anti-corruption stuff. I mean, while it is obviously deeply like self-serving and is just like rooting out his own political opponents, he is doing it to actually wealthy, powerful people. So, well, that's that's probably because they're the only people that can challenge him, right. not because he's any he's interested in anything like socialism. Um, so what you're saying is that they've created a set of prudential interests that will further the substantive interests of the Chinese working class. Is very great. Yeah. Cool. Indeed. Um, I, I I definitely just I don't know. Unfortunately, like for the Marxist tradition, like uh, a lot of the Bakuninist points about like creating like a society of super friends are actually pretty much adopted by Leninists. Um, it's kind of like a sad tale, like whatever, you know, bones to pick I have with like, you know, Kautsky and Leninist like a uh, synthesis that completely ignores a critique of the Russian Revolution, um, at least, you know, is attempting to at least pay lip service to an, an open democratic fight uh, in a sort of tr soft trot kind of way. Because in general, like a lot of the critique of Bakunin offered by the author can be 
you know, thrown at the face of Marxists in the 20th century. So um, I just want to read a snatch of 203 in the middle of 203. So Marx shared Bakunin's concerns about the risks involved in using state institutions to improve the position of workers and continued to warn German social democrats against, quote, realistic tactics that might lead to nationalist complicity with the government. But in maintaining that these risks were unavoidable and in rejecting the anarchist alternative as a utopian attempt to wish away the constraints imposed by states and the interstate system, Marx stood on solid prescriptive ground. His preference for open political struggle over the militant conspiratorial methods of Bakunin's followers rested on a judgment borne out by the subsequent history of communism, that such methods endanger the democratic and internationalist aims of the revolution no less than the conquest of state power by the workers' movement. Um, yeah. No, I mean, that, and that, that is true because the, I guess the difference between um, the uh, Bolsheviks and like the Bakuninists is that like the Bolsheviks, they were doing, yeah, underground illegalist organizing only because they, it was illegal to do what they were doing. And they felt like, well, we, we have to do this in lieu of doing nothing until things are open up again. Uh, but the problem is being in those underground circles forever did kind of yeah. warp their internal political culture in ways that would come back to bite them in the ass later in a big, bad way. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, a lot of what we're saying about, you know, being sensitive to local conditions, you know, has very little to do with the, you know, founding 21 conditions of the Communist International that, you know, insists on a Bolshevized international. Like it's um, it's like the, and then you kind of get the worst of both worlds. You get like the, you know, the list, kind of like the the investments in the state that end up like folding into like a Lasallian right wing aspect and and this like conspira conspiratorial stuff like there was this in the dna of the bolsheviks there was an attempt at a counter tendency in the mensheviks that has its most virtuous expression in the georgian democratic republic that was crushed by stalin uh after they you know refused to join with like the red or the white army um or the internationalist menshevik opposition uh within within Russia that didn't join the white army. Um, you know, there were like, there were elements in Russia that like tried to maintain this, you know, Marxian middle ground, but they were crushed. And instead we ended up with this like mishmash of like status conspiratorial shit. That is like the worst of LaSalle and Bakunin with Marx's face all over it. Of course I want to ax grind about, you know, Marx, LaSalle and Bakunin and its impact on the 20th century. I can't help myself, but perhaps we should segue to the revenge of nations if everyone's sick of this. This is the this is the chapter that is, you Most know... Most important, actually. This one. Added. Well, I mean, it's aiming for, like, the, you know, relevance to its time, which in a way is the most important. But since we don't live in the 90s, it doesn't feel the most important to me, personally. Yeah, so basically this is the one where... It almost seems as if it's written for liberal policymakers, <laughs> which is really interesting. She's trying to extrapolate these three main conditions that Marx and Engels derived in order to yeah, give 90s liberals a way to evaluate these competing nationalist claims, especially that were taking place in Eastern Europe post-Soviet Union, um, in a way that would allow them – give them some kind of rubric – 
to take sides in these things and not just allow them to degenerate into these insane ethnic conflicts. Um, but but maybe we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. So around, I guess one of the first things I noticed was, I guess from 6.1, the nationalizing of socialism, where they start to see the effects of shifting warfare and how it, how it relates to class struggle. You know, you have Marx seeing it as these wars are ginned up as ways to tramp down on class conflict at home, which there's a certain level of truth to that, but there are also broader economic things uh, at play as well. Um, and one thing Engels gloms on to in, 18, in 1878 was the new form of militarism, where it's began to, as he says, dominate and swallow Europe. And he kind of, he sees though, in this drive towards more universal conscription, um, a something that in some ways could turn it did to a certain extent turn to the working class benefit. One is you have people you have more working class people who are trained in use of arms, and you also have people who are used to cooperating in a high stress war situation, which creates a certain a certain level of social solidarity that. Uh, retains after the war. That's where you get uh, like spirit of forty-five German shit or uh, English uh, sort of social solidarity that birthed, birthed the NHS, right? Or you'll see like a, if you watch stuff about like trade unions at the time, a lot of them like appeal to you know like the wartime and the the sense of duty that that fosters in people who fought in those things. Um, let's see, um, but. He also saw, like in 1879, how the sheer destructiveness and volume, especially with the new forms of firearms and, and uh, explosives, could very easily set back the European workers' movement like 20 years, he says. It's like a broad number he threw out. Um, yeah, but it, it's not just the destructiveness, but also like the way that this would reinforce and re-entrench national antagonisms. Uh, and like the disint- uh, I'm going to read from the end of that paragraph on 213. The disintegration of the workers movement into parochial national factions appeared irreversible and Engels now presented the chances of revolutionary action, let alone success as depending more on faithful contingency than on coordinated exertions by the working class movement. Um, which is, you know, pretty bleak, but uh, you know, pretty accurate. Maybe read something from two fourteen. So it is true that workers usually remained subaltern participants in that community. He's talking about the national community uh, regarded with suspicion by governments and which dreaded the specter of proletarian internationalism. But the main trend after 1878 was towards national accommodation rather than social fission. And it seems fair to say that Marx's later strategy tended to promote rather than discourage this trend. The problem was not that his strategic method went against the changing historical grain. It was that Marx refused to modify his early revolutionary goals in light of the reform oriented and national means he now advised workers to use in their struggles for power. He therefore left a confused legacy, which enabled some of his followers to rail against working-class reformism and to equate all forms of working-class patriotism with chauvinistic false consciousness, while others in the reformist camp could equally cite Marx's authority to defend an enlightened patriotism, which, although quite compatible with a pluralistic internationalism, located the workers' first interests within particular national societies. The textual record suggests that Marx's overall position, and certainly that 
and certainly that adopted in his later years, was closer to the second of these interpretations. By clinging to revolutionary goals, he conceived in very different circumstances in the 1840s, he was forced to walk a polemical and strategic tightrope between an ambitious internationalism and the risk that, in times of international crisis, proletarian patriotism, patriotism would become indistinguishable from the national narrow-mindedness of the ruling class. I have that part highlighted in two colors. <laughs> but again, I mean, if if they're thinking in terms of broader timescales, like decades and so on and so forth, I could see how you would say, okay, yes, on some level, this could integrate you further into the state. But at the same time, the working class has to use the existing like actual avenues towards development and self-expansion within civil society that it has. Otherwise, yeah, you're best reduced to just doing shit in secret. <laughs> And you can't have a democratic, broad mass movement that functions in complete political secrecy underground. Yeah, and so therefore any expression of like national feeling by workers isn't necessarily like, which, you know, is is kind of inevitable, especially in these, you know, fragmenting situations in Eastern Europe. Like that doesn't necessarily, you know, mean a narrow-minded you know sectional doesn't necessarily mean something narrow-minded and sectional like there there can be there can be something like virtuous being expressed there for communists that um i mean and i find this much more plausible in you know the some of the uh, breakups in eastern europe than in you know the united states at the moment for instance like you'd have to really do some bong rip balkanization scenarios in order to think about how this could apply here. But I suppose it can in a way. It's just, it's hard for me to like reach into expressions of American national sentiment and identify the, you know, positive things that people can get out of it. I don't know how much like, I don't know if it's maybe like a mistake to port this over in, in, in that way that sometimes one could be falsely universalizing. But when you take Marx's attitude towards nationalism and think about it in an American context in 2020, like it is, you know, I don't know. Well, yeah, it's so weird it's because the United States, swallow. the United States was founded as a settler colonial state. Like that's the problem. It wasn't like say Germany where you just have a bunch of people who had been there for centuries, right? Or England or France or wherever. Like it's a place that people came and settled and the class antagonism antagonisms of the United States were historically able to be papered over in a variety of ways. Yeah, you had racism, you had colonial expansion as a way you know, if, it, if things got too bad, you could just head out west and try your luck there. Um, yeah. Similarly, more genocide. you had the and crucially, you had the post-war boom. Everybody else was down. Our industry became the workhouse of the world. And for a nice, a sweet little 20 year period there, uh, we had this booming economic uh, structure that allowed material plenty that you could basically use to bribe off the working class and build a fat middle class that could absorb all the all of those tensions and then the transition once all the once the other countries that we marshall planned caught up to us industrially well hey we can financialize and we'll just have production all over the world and we'll just skim off the top and we'll have redistributive net mechanisms we'll just do it by having people be in the service economy and they'll get they'll you know they'll shine our shoes and lick our buttholes and that's how the money will get spread around or they'll even maybe have direct socialization investment in the market or through real estate right 
So that brings us to the point right now where the wheels all that and all that are starting to come off, and maybe, God willing, we could have an actual meaningful class reckoning. Um, but, you know, maybe they can find some more ethnic ethnic antagonisms to fuck this shit up again. But anyway, sorry for that tangent. No, it's but it's it's worth reflecting on. I mean, how does this hit you in uh, the UK? I don't know. So, I think it's brought out a good point in that there's a lot of things have are brought together to create this kind of national sentiment, and it part of them. Some of those things are perfectly benign or even positive things that relate to the fact that people have lived here for a long ass time. There was a lot of history, a lot of different things built community and different things built up that are perfectly benign but at the same time all those things have genuinely been wedded to a cross-class collaboration project doesn't serve the interest of the working class both here or anywhere else like you talk about financialization in america when like you had no other way to like maintain an economically dominant position as everywhere else caught up to you but like Britain was financializing via like the breaking down of the empire for a long ass time. All those things that make it kind of hard to believe could be true in America also make it hard to believe it'd be true in the UK. I think it's important when we talk about nationalism in Europe also not to just think, well, it's kind of, it doesn't match up perfectly to where the borders are now, but these ethnic groups lived there for a long time and they're always kind of similar to what they are now. Now it's just being represented by a kind of a unified state which was didn't exist before which isn't really how it happened like you look at germany all the different german groups who like now form the local federalized states were really different histories going on and there were like loads of other ones that didn't fit into that at all into any of those states like federalized states that are there now that kind of just got totally written out the picture as well as like well, there was a kind of homogenous German identity forced on in Britain that forming a singular English identity resulted like stamping out dialects that were practically languages in and of themselves, destroying like the fact that Welsh was spoken almost all the way up the north western coast of England and like getting rid of that while at the same time making getting rid of Welsh as a spoken language in Wales as part of a broader attempt to crush the like growing trade unionist movement in Wales, like there's nowhere where like modern nationalism wasn't the result of like crushing a load of other like local identities and persuasions. So there's nowhere, even in Europe, where nations have existed the longest time, even in England, which is like arguably the oldest modern nation state, there's nowhere it really has this kind of organic character. No, that's that's a very good that's a very good point. And I guess you can see like the United States I guess you could say the ethnic composition of American nationalism is basically, you know, white settlerism, right? White settlerism. Like that's what that, and that's what unifies this thing geographically. But, you know, yeah, I suppose like potentially one of the like concerns, like if the United States is to maintain a sort of like hegemonic existence in the long term, it will moderate its whiteness, but not not be able to moderate its settlerness and like a virtuous sort of like virtuous forms of nationalism or what have you, or, you know, sort of like self-determination movements that I, on this continent that I can think of that makes sense 
would be something like, you know, that of the, the extant, like Indian tribes, you know, like indigenous American tribes that like, you know, in, in Germany or England, like in nation building, you know, you're taking people from neighboring ethnic groups and smoothing over their differences in settler colonialism. You have, you know, colonists just paving over the existing, you know, tribal cultures. So here, yeah, it's true. I don't, I don't want to suggest they're the same thing at all. Of course, no, no, no. You did, you didn't. But, um, the, but you know, no matter where you are, there is a, there's a, in cybernetic terms, there's a, you know, constricting of variety in nation building, whether it's settler displacement or something more like a sort of smoothing out you know, like a homogenization process um, between neighboring tribes. There's always something like that. And the connection that I can make is, you know, I don't know, something like Scottish nationalism or Irish nationalism has potential, you know, progressive usage, potential, you know, socialist benefit where certainly an English nationalism seems to lack it. <laughs> yeah. But like what I think you can say is even within England, there's this idea that came up in like the different strands of things that gave birth to nationalism, like nationalism as an, as like a, as, a, as an imposition or like a move towards popular sovereignty as opposed to like the sovereignty of like the aristocracy or the king, like, no, all us, all the people of this nation are sovereign over it. I think even somewhere in England, perhaps there is a possibility of like a popular sovereignty of like the general population against a very specific subsection of the ruling class, or like against the ruling class in general. Because like I think you also can't underestimate that in part of that modern nation pro process, which like smoothed over these differences that existed the degree to which the people who made up the feudal ruling class stayed the same as the people who made up the new the new capitalist ruling class. And obviously a load of people joined them over time, some of them faded into irrelevance. But like there is a real continuality there. Like if there is anything positive, I think there is that could be drawn out is something based around that. But even then I think is a stretch. Yeah, so Banner basically alleges that Marx underestimated the role of the state. Uh, he very much saw things as proceeding and conceptualized things, and it was appropriate at the time. This is the you know original li liberalism that he, along with a lot of other observers, saw this laissez-faire idea in capitalism, where historically what tended to happen was the state became very effective at using uh, the carrots and stick and mediating class relations. And development was often driven more by state capitalism than just this kind of gradual uh, buildup of like you know mercantile and uh, you know different uh, industrial forces eventually adding up to this broader market. And they're just kind of given the given the uh, given the green light by the state to just run around and do whatever the fuck they want. Um, that state capitalism would be a much broader force in capitalist development since pretty much every country besides maybe USA, France, and England were playing from behind in the capitalist game. It made sense that they would, you would need to leverage resources 
And in these places where the bourgeoisie was weak, the state would be the only institution that could do that in a meaningful sense. And so, like, the state, uh, the state comes to play maybe a much larger role in capitalist development and is historically tended to be uh, more deft at mediating and tamping down class conflict than maybe Marx predicted. Uh, or that's basically, that's what, that's what Benner argues. Yeah, and, and even in these um, nations that, you know, were would organically just sort of benefit from the laissez-faire hierarchy like Britain and the U.S., they still made, you know, great use of protectionism in the welfare state. Um, you know, although Marx in general has something like, uh, like a pro-free trade attitude, he explicitly advocates protectionism in Ireland as insurance against the loss of economic sovereignty during, you know, like land expropriation. Um, and like, but Benner feels like he didn't like really draw out the full lesson from, you know, his own advice. And on the top of 219, she says, yeah, he failed to see that the most effective response of non-hegemonic states in general might be to expand political control over local economies, making capitalism in the first instance, a national phenomenon and through state intervention in the economy. And though it's fine. And although state intervention in the economy did not necessarily lead to the redistribution of domestic wealth, the growing pressures of external competition did encourage states to adopt welfare policies that helped them stem the threat from within and improve competitiveness abroad. Marx's polarized model of class struggle deterred him from envisioning the rise of the welfare state as an antidote to the divided nation, giving workers an economic as well as psychological, as well as a political or psychological stake in their own nation states. In these conditions, the global spread of capitalism not only proved compatible with the persistence of national particularisms, the uneven geographic diffusion of its benefits tend to stimulate new patriotic and separatist nationalisms, which workers often supported out of rational self-interest rather than ideological delusion. Um, Yeah, so that's that is certainly a place where like the rational choice models of uh, Adam Perzwowski when discussing like the rationality of the working class, like, you know, bear out. And one of the ways of attacking these models or at least, you know, mitigating them or, or you know, questioning their or at least like questioning their, you know, premises is this notion of methodological nationalism right of um and it's that's not used in the exact same way that you know one might look at you know uh i don't know a rational choice formalization of you know a working class political party in a country you know like that it's not used in the exact same sense but there is a sense that like nationalism as this like primordial you know basic form of in-group, out-group is very much like an overstated, reified, like, way of understanding nationalism. And that, like, there is, you know, there's a way of still understanding how national interests can be more enduring than, you know, political attachment or, you know, your kind of, like, class like status as you know workers movements rise and fall um 
and why, you know, an, an appeal to nation might still have like a broader resonance than, than these other things, um, without making it a primordial, like, you know, premise. This is the, this is the form of, of attachment of identity because there's, there's a Hegelian notion that crept into G.A. Cohen's later work that I see her as writing very much against, um, that, you know, identity is very important, therefore nationalism. Right. Um, um, this, in 6.2, uh, she gets into what she calls uh, methodological nationalism. Let's see. Uh, let's see. In accounts which treat nationalism as the only convincing answer to a basic need for identity, presumably felt in the same way by all members of a national society and directed towards the same objects, the problem emerges clearly. Nationalism seems to hover above all social and political contingency, imposing an iron logic on everything that impinges on it. This outlook ha- has, of course, been greatly... F- blah, 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 blah. This becomes clear when we examine one of the central claims which may foster methodological nationalist oversights. The claim that nations possess a capacity beyond that of any other human groupings to command strong allegiance and elicit collective action. Those who make this claim may make more or less defensible subjects about where that capacity comes from. Among the less defensible is the assumption that nations are at any rate... The linguistic and cultural communities from which they derive are everywhere the natural, perennially self-reproducing bases of identity and objects of group loyalty. Um, and she alleges that this doesn't really hold up under scrutiny uh, for one for, for one thing because um, so there are like internal political conflicts within nations, and there are national policies which are nationalist policies which are designed to confront outsiders, but often those nationalist policies aimed at confronting outsiders, uh, there's conflict between different sectors of society as to what those things should be or what the problems even are are perceived as being wildly different by different sectors within that society. So the idea that there is this nationalist sense that everybody feels equally just because they're all waving the same flag um, is completely absurd. So yeah, you have the internal conflicts in the society and the national policies, which are kind of directed towards outsiders. Um, and I think one of the big things that we've seen that you see the ruling class try and do, and I've observed this especially a lot in the United States, is subsuming the latter under the former, having some kind of greater external enemy as a way to create this false unity within the society. That's why the Cold War was such a gift to the project of American nationalism in the second half of the 20th century and why it less than a decade later they had to find something else in the form of you know fundamentalist Islamic terrorism and as that fell apart now you have you know them concocting new things whether it's Russia or China or hey remember the Muslims Um, there's this frantic search by the political class in the United States to find some greater external enemy that will allow them to continue to basically hollow out the society beneath them <laughs> and get away with it. And on a similar note, like in the UK for the past like 20, 30 years, I forget the dates, the EU is the ex- has been the external thing that explains all the failings of the British states, all the reasons why the working class gets a crap deal and the way things shake out in Britain are explained as the result of EU legislation, not having proper control over our own laws anymore. And, like, the EU's bad. 
like it's a shit neoliberal institution, but most of the things it does that are terrible, Britain did first. And so it doesn't add up, but it does make sense because EU, the EU does pass those laws, does make those kind of regulations, so it's easy to shift the blame onto. The alternative that she offers is, and what she calls a more sophisticated account of the nation's mobile, mobilizing powers. Um, I'm just going to read a snatch from 224 because it's kind of like, it's, it's, I don't know. It's, um, let's, uh, let's see how different we feel this is, right? So this account does not reject the idea that nations are a natural source of collective identity. Instead, it points out that the myths of primordial nationhood should not be taken literally since they are just metaphors, which capture a basic ontological truth. The truth simply is that the distinctive cultures, languages, and ways of life embodied in nations do in fact permeate all aspects of people's lives, shaping their other commitments and interests. The constitutive character of national attributes fosters a singular depth of attachment which cannot be replicated in other social groupings. And this has always been the case, even if the homogenized cultures of modern nations are a fairly recent creation. National identities may not be primordial, but they do provide a sense of continuity in a world where older bonds are brittle and other social roles transient. Political parties and doctrines are in one day and out the next. Empires and corporations rise and fall. Yesterday's peasants become today's wage laborers, and the miners of today will be the microchip salesmen of tomorrow. Last year, we pretended to meet five-year five year plans laid down in Moscow. This year, the IMF calls the shots. National identity gets its resilience and mobilizing power from its capacity to withstand these turbulent waters. While it sometimes takes a heavy battering, it is particularly hard to sink. The problem there's a lot of problems with that that perspective. Um, one is it ignores, well, it ignores class and it ignores the state because, like a nation, again, this gets back to the earlier chapters in the book, is inextricably bound to the state itself. Like, why isn't, for instance, uh, Canada and the USA just one country? Like, it's pretty much the same country. Like, you drive to McDonald's there, everyone speaks English except they got a little little uh, maple leaf drawn in the arch. Cool, right? Like it's if if it was just this thing that emerged spontaneously out of people's consciousness through shared language and culture and shit, um, yeah, USA and Canada would be one country. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, this is what Benner's putting forward as the alternative to uh, methodological nationalism, but it sounds like, you know, kind of close. I'm not saying that it's the same because I tend to agree with her read here that like. There is something more enduring about these ties, even if you want to see them gone. And I, you know, I don't really know how to challenge this other than like, you know, to say, you know, yeah, but yeah, but the state, yeah, but class, yeah, but the economy. Yeah. Well, yeah. It, no, well, it's allowed. It's it's the form that people turn to. Well, she mentions like, right, the social disintegration, right? This explains people's, yeah, people's hiding behind the flag as the society pulls apart because it symbolizes some kind of social solidarity and unity for people that, you know, you would think maybe people, as things get worse, people will get blackpilled on the nation, but it goes the ex exact opposite way in a lot of cases. They get more nationalistic. It's precisely because of that. But be, but it's... Yes. It, that happens because it's there because it's the only thing that 
is allowed to flourish because it's expedient to the interests of the dominant class. Like other forms of human social solidarity are not allowed to flourish, and so people don't look to those because they're not there. It's like she raises a good point. Like it does have this enduring character, like Jake said, but that it ultimately ignores. And this is the bit where you can say, but the state, but class, and it not just like be just sound like raising the classic objections because that's what you've got left. Like it does ignore <laughs> how the nation is formed. Because like we already talked about talked about about how the American like nationalism's formed as a part of the settler colonies project, how even in places in Europe where nations arose first and they, they seem the most organic, developing out of ethnic groups that have lived in those er- roughly those areas for a long as time, it was still the actual modern national identity, these modern ethnicities based around nation states were created via state action and that like through conscious policy or through schools through suppression of different movement different working class and peasant movements in different in different regions through all these things like there is no modern nationalism without the state enforcing it in the first instance and that Enforcement is the result of class forces, which is why part of what I think she refers to in the non-autonomy of nationalism here. And like, it's just it's been enforced for so long, it's become naturalised in people's minds. But I think there is real hope still because of that. That as the ability of the state to enforce that naturalisation breaks down, that attachment to it in the place of other forms of social bonds and other forms of solidarity will be able to flourish again i i I do want to you know yeah of course the the communist hope is that there will be other forms of solidarity but i do want to push back a bit on on this the idea that she's ignoring that um you know the ways that nationhood are is like the way that the nation is constructed because you know there she goes like a great length towards talking about the myths of, of nationhood and how it has like relatively modern origins, but she doesn't think that this actually gets at the basic problem here is that like, there are just like different ways of life that like, you know, it's sort of something in the air and it affects like everything about, you know, like a region's like way of doing things. And like the nation is a metaphor for this basically in her eyes, like, but there are like you know different ways of doing things in different places even like there's the, even though there's the value form and the universalist aspects of capitalism there are you know different variations that might seem i don't know they might not seem very significant to us as marxists but like they're going to have to be if we're interested in forming political projects in mass democratic you know popular ways but, um, but again the axis at which you would organize that again, is consistently suppressed. Um, She even points out, like, part of the reason you get these resurgent, virulent nationalisms in Eastern Europe after the collapse of the Mm. Soviet Union is because a certain level of, like, nationalist discourse was still tolerated under the Eastern Bloc, whereas maybe, like, more class-based critiques were absolutely suppressed because they implicated the ruling bureaucracy, right? Well, not not even still tolerated is the way to put it. Like, it was the only way in which these critiques were articulable like it's uh but you see, like, you see what i'm th- saying though like that's that's the thing that was allowed to flourish even in that instance that's the thing that's allowed to flourish and that's, so that's the thing that people look to yeah the, yeah the only thing i'd say is that like 
it's not like it's a matter of active repression at this point. Like many things, this, you know, kind of perhaps functional logic is just replicated by, you know, a more dispersed system. And the fact that the only collective attachments that we seem to have are these like, you know, vague modern national ones like and you know what to the degree like and I'm kind of skeptical that these things are really as like um especially in you know something like the United States I'm skeptical that these things are really as you know durable as Benner seems to point out like especially with you know American settler nationalism but like to the extent that these things like are there like um you know it it's not because people are stamping out class belonging they're stamping out like 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 uh in it i don't know if there's a situation in which it's at least attractive for people to articulate themselves in the collective interests that are available if we don't have the language of the nation which you know honestly like approaching this book and even at the end of it i still don't really feel like you know, like the settler population of the United States has the language of the nation as communists to use in the sort of in a dumb CPUSA communism is 20th century Americanism way. Or I still have a, a I still have trouble in articulating that in like a more refined way because I'm afraid it's going to turn into the bellows. You know, I'm afraid it's going to turn into like, you know, this po like populism kind of thing. But also, I don't know what other collective attachments you know, uh, like resonate, like the, uh, the only thing I could really think of are like fandoms and like, <laughs> like uh -huh. the way sports teams have Cultur their like cultural stuff. Yeah. 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 That, that kind of stuff actually does cut <laughs> closer to people's hearts than, you know, the American flag or some bullshit. That, that's, that's cause you don't live in Trump country. Maybe down, not down, down here. We know actually you live in Arizona. Yeah. So you're kind of, yeah, you're kind yeah, of yeah, I was, yeah. I was going to just let you spin your wheels until you realize I live in Arizona. Yeah. But like, <laughs> I think you're right to say there is, there is like different ways of life. There is something in the air, which people do identify with really strongly. And that is wedded in the current situation to nationalism, to the nation. But it, what I think she kind of does ignore here while ignoring, while recognizing the way that the nation is constructed, by the state and like the myth-making process is that because those things weren't always with us the nation they don't always have to be and there's got to be some way i think of separating them that doesn't just focus or like try and do the whole socialism is 21st 20th century americanism but like and that is the place where although there are real limits to the power you can wield through like municipalist projects i think there is something there which can help subvert those kind of feelings perhaps but maybe that's me being overly optimistic otherwise it's just socialism is 21st century furryism is what's left to go off the fandom bit if you were to engage electorally politically right now it would probably look something like bernie sanders right where you you maybe i some, would hope not you sometimes I hear i hear what you're saying no you sometimes hear him talk about for instance he tried to i hear ron sort of try to reframe it where he's like well look History of America is the history of struggle, and he would talk about, you know, emancipation. He would talk about, you know, early, early like populist rebellions, American labor, and stuff like that, and be like, that's actually the history of America. It's like if a society trying to, trying to basically like shake off like the oppressive fetters of like the old world that it brought with it, and to build something genuinely new. Which there is a strand of that that runs through it, 
you know, sometimes at his sometimes uh, if you listen to somebody like you know like MLK or James Baldwin talk, you could see them try to frame things in a way where it's like you know the United States as a country could potentially heal itself, and like for instance, like white people could embrace like this stranger that they brought over with them, and learn something about themselves in a way and grow spiritually as people, um, and. Uh, you know, basically turn this kind of negative dialectic into something positive that leads to a kind of broader flourishing, right? So there could be a way, I think, perhaps to engage uh, politically and not just be like, uh, you know, like we got to burn this fucking flag, man, fucking mirror. You know? <laughs> like there, yeah. there. I think you know, reading this made me think there could potentially be a pro. Uh, a possible way to do that, do that isn't as clumsy or heavy-handed as... I mean, it's easy to make fun of the CPUSA as, like, communism is 20th century Americanism. But, you know, at the same time, the CPUSA were the only people, like, advocating for, like, civil rights for black people on a national stage politically, so... Them and the NAACP. But, yeah, I mean, like, um, how do I put this? I guess what I'm saying is that even the kind of nationalism that that's being appealed to there still leaves the settler question untouched. And any kind of virtuous form of, you know, American settler nationalism would have to address, you know, contemporary indigenous communities, the legitimate claims of contemporary, you know, indigenous tribes and, you know, whatever forms of autonomy and self-determination that they, that they would actually, you know, want to have. They would have to meet the first criterion, you know what I mean? Like, for the first time ever. That, that is... That is definitely a political struggle especially with, with some people but there are also a lot of people who you know in, in like a stupid way love indians you know what i mean like they love you know you know the cherokee people you know like they love cherokee people cherokee tribe so proud to I love the idea of like people who are attached to the earth. And it's like it's 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 really stupid and kind of condescending in some way. But I feel like there maybe is some way that potentially people could open themselves up to again learn from like other people um, in like a productive right. way and be like, okay, yeah, look, we still like because we could easily give a lot of land back. It's just you know. Like yeah, no, that's that's that wouldn't be hard, and like 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 it's a big stretch to write this like you know Anthony Kiedis, I don't know like wear a headdress at Coachella kind of like you know noble savage romanticism into some kind of version of settler nationalism that actually meets the first criterion here in, you know, doing reciprocity with the, you know, indigenous peoples like that are still here, you know, like, um, but like it, it, it is like the, it's, it's the minimum program for like any kind of national appeal that isn't bullshit, that isn't ideological bullshit. But I think if there was like a genuinely, I think socialist, uh, electoral engagement that took place that would absolutely be a part of it again even like even bernie sanders was getting you know again one of the more beautiful moments of it was like indian like indian groups showing up and like chanting and stuff at his rallies 
you know like i feel like that would that would be a factor in any like serious american socialist movement now whether that would win whether that would find a way to overcome like this deeply ingrained like settler colonial mindset uh that's an open question obviously and not one that the odds look very good on but hey you know maybe I, I mean, and I don't want to sound like a miseration theorist, but maybe this way that people have been have been vested, that people have, do have to become disinvested in some meaningful way in order to develop this more open-minded mindset, and not just not just vote to secure their property values, so that they can maintain the nearly half a million dollar value on their home they bought for ninety thousand dollars thirty years ago. You yeah, know? I, I don't I don't think that's a miseration theory. I think you know. All of Engels' writings on American nationalism are like, oh, man, as long as there's like still like enough land to just keep buying people off, the workers movement is so fucked. Like and it's it's just true. Like so we have to that is like, again, like if if there's going to be any like engagement with national feeling, because, again, like Benner is positing an end to national conflict not through an overcoming of national attachment but through a non-zero-sum virtuous form honorable form of national feeling that you know builds and overlaps positive interests into internationalism it is a very hard image to see in the united states it is it is a difficult one even for those who, you know, sit around smoking weed, trying to be visionaries. Like, but, you know, if that path is there, we have to, you know, that I suppose we should encourage it. It's, it's going to pick up more American, you know, it's going to, it's going to, it's going to get more momentum than flag burning. It just is like, but, but, you know, I, but I don't hate flag burning. Like, it's kind of fun. (laughs) <laughs> should we yeah i mean we literally open our show uh quoting ayatollah all right so we should we jump to 6.3 and bring this in for a landing uh yeah the last thing i wanted to say about the non-autonomy of nationalism is that this is a shot at the latter uh altusarian structuralists who after you know being like yeah you know all forms of you know human attachment are happy phenomenal and the only thing that matters is economics will then be like well uh maybe if it's not like a complete pu- like if it's not a complete puppet maybe it can do anything and there's you know the autonomy of of nationalism becomes this like you know it just makes the whole historical materialist model meaningless because there's you know there's no strictures on what nationalism can do and she's reasserting that there's you know <laughs> it's almost like She's making the opposite point that Marxist humanists normally make. Well, it's like, well, you know, the early Hegelian stuff is relevant to the structural, you know, like writings that all the structuralists like, you know, with regards to historical materialism. It's almost like you have to be like to the humanist Hegelians. You know, the structural stuff that Marx wrote is relevant to the humanist stuff that he wrote. Like you have to like kind of like. You have to put that there because I. I, there are a lot of people that simply can't read anything about historical materialism without foaming at the mouth about base and superstructure and forces and relations, basically in the way that Stalin envisioned them. And, you know, just just stop being able to read what, like, the theory in Marx at all. Um, and so I think this was, like, 
in a way, like a love letter to what was still good about G.A. Cohen in his latter years when he's revising historical materialism to be more realistic, but also embracing, uh, so, you know, some of the more right-wing forms of, of well, like, embracing Hegelian theories of identity in a way that cuts conservative. I think... And this, yeah, this last section, which she's really trying to bring to people who maybe don't even have an interest in Marxism, although I don't know how many people would actually read something like this and be that, have and, that be the case. But yeah, regardless, get, get to section 6.3. Yeah. Re- regardless, I mean, it's, it's a close out 6.2, which she's really basically just trying to say is that nationalism is not just this phantom that emerges in people's consciousness. It's not just this naturalistic form of like group cohesion and affinity that takes place at a certain scaled out level. It is the outcome of political processes that have di- are the outcome of negotiations and fights between different sectors within a society. And so this determines the character of different nationalisms and also the ways in which we can evaluate those nationalisms and what they mean. Nationalism is not just this sleeping bear or monster or something you have to constantly tiptoe around politically and hope we don't wake it up, which again, like that's live shit 100%. They see like this deep well of reaction everywhere. We just, oh, if we just really light about, if we just tiptoe around it, if we just stick to procedure and if we just stick to everything and just never wake it up and disturb it, we'll be fine. You know, don't wake, don't wake, uh, don't wake daddy that fucking kids game from the 90s <laughs> right like that's 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 liberal mindset in every sense and so uh yeah i think she also undersells mass society theory i think like there's more truth to it in certain contexts than she does but anyway let's move let's bring this in for a landing uh 6.3 some post-national post-nationalist that fallacies uh yeah let's go so yeah, she basically she goes in for this idea that was very this ex- irrational exuberance post the fall of the Soviet Union that the number one thing that people want is freedom. That's what all this was about, and she points out something very very basic that freedom, as a in terms of people's hierarchy of needs, freedom is kind of conditional. Like if if you get and this is you know. Was this Stalin or Lenin or somebody just said the thing like, "What's freedom if you don't have like some bread to eat or something like that?" I forget, but like it's Stalin. It's the quote people always put out under his real name to like trick libs into agreeing with him, like which I actually really enjoy. It's a great quote. He's he gets a lot of stuff wrong. He gets that one right. You know, it's like. But yeah, freedom. So she basically points out freedom is conditional for people. Um, the the you have to have some not only some basic needs met, but she brings in the i uh, the identity aspect and the way that uh, the destabilization of people's identities, particularly if they're in a society where identities have been stable for a long time, can be very disconcerting to people and lead them towards maybe reactionary and like more virulent forms of nationalism. Um, and she kind of talked about uh, how when bringing in these identitarian aspects. You want to make it clear to people because conservatives will say, "Listen, this is a society we have. Okay, you don't get to have another society. And that's arrogant of you to even try and sit. Anything you do will throw the baby out with the bathwater and just disintegrate like the social body, right? And whenever you dabble in like trying to alter the meaning of established social identities or anything like that, you sort of have to make it very clear that what you're trying to do is create a more like expans- expansive, inclusive set of capacities and definitions for people not 
assault the identities that exist such as they are. Although you can only really you can only really do that so much because at a certain level, depending on how conservative and traditional people are, they will conceive of any identity that is other to them as an assault on their very existence by the existence of the other. Yeah. And so this is a, so that like earlier bit is aimed at like the uh, IMF types that are like super psyched that, Hey, now we can do like, you know, a uh, free market shock therapy. And uh, this is going to work out great. Everything's going to be great. Like, we're, like, um, okay, I got one here. Uh, Mar- Marx, okay, so this is about Marx and Engels internationalism. Um, Mar- first, Marx argued, uh, well, he's talking about the liberal free marketing and utopian democratic contemporaries. First, Marx argued the latter wrongly equated the removal of specific forms of coercion with the achievement of freedom per se. Marx was as keen as any 19th century liberal to see the end of protectionist barriers, restrictions on civil liberties, and foreign oppression. But he did not think that free trade, civic liberties, or national independence would suffice to end conflicts over the appropriate way to distribute and exercise these newly expanded freedoms. One of the most daunting obstacles were, once the most daunting obstacles were removed, some people would seek to enlarge their range of social choices to increase their capacity to get what they want. And these efforts, as Marx saw, would bring them into conflict with others who prefer to keep some people less free than themselves. Second, Marx believed that both classical liberals and democratic idealists made fundamental mistakes in identifying the values that inspired people to make peace or war. Liberals assume that what reasonable people want, more than anything else, is the freedom to pursue whatever they regard as their self-interest. According to Marx, this assumption obscured two byproducts of modern political and economic freedoms that may render them threatening. Intense competition and social atomization. For people unaccustomed to such freedom, for those who find themselves disadvantaged by it, freedom may appear less attractive than the authoritarianism or collectivist values embodied in militant nationalism. Idealists, on the other hand, treated human beings as vehicles for the realization of higher or spiritual or collective goals, which presumably propelled the quest for freedom, rational statehood, and ethical wholeness, even when people were hungry or otherwise endangered. Marx chided his utopian Democrat friends for overestimating the goodwill of the man on the street when he faced bankruptcy, denying that it was necessarily irrational for such a man to recoil from offers of political and economic freedom if that freedom seemed to threaten his livelihood. Um... Whereas liberal individualism downgraded the value people place on cooperative bonds and social stability, democratic idealism exaggerated the independent motivating force of its own political ideals, forgetting that these arise from what must eventually confront the real wants of real people. So yeah, this like these two stripes, these like free traders and these sort of utopians, both don't really understand like people's needs for security and people's needs for identity. If, in a way, we're really just talking about the triad of the French Revolution. Yeah, liberté, great. But you need, like, égalité and fraternité. Like, if freedom means that you end up on the bottom of a totem pole and you're crushed, that sucks. If you, like, if freedom means that anything that means anything to you is withered away by social atomization, like, that sucks. Like, there are like other needs that people have that aren't that just aren't addressed by, you know, not getting shot in the head just for saying stuff like that's good. No one's saying that's not good. I mean, people are saying that's not good. That's why I was joking uh, earlier about a, uh, you know, potential Pol Pot quote that people like or something. I'm, I'm making it. I don't know. Like when people appeal to Stalin for these things, it like makes my head explode because you know that that's the trade-off being made, right? Like, mm. whereas, like, 
the way to make these points is is not to make despotic inroads on liberty in general, like to try to present them in the way that, you know, she, and the way that Benner like has Marx like, walking the line in so many of these debates. So this is the sort of, you know, Aristotelian golden mean way that Marx walks through a lot of debates of yeah. trying to balance these things that are often at odds and to come up with, you know, a way that these things can be, pragmatically satisfied together at the end of the day just because the liberal vision of freedom doesn't really add up and is internally contradictory with a lot of its other stated beliefs and like the things that are actually needed in order to achieve like a meaningful freedom does mean that freedom in and of itself is a bad thing or something that's not worth pursuing yeah and like in this particular moment in the mid 90s it was really easy for you know these like cosmopolitan neoliberals and you know like utopian like i don't know kind of like utopian observers which it's not only including liberals but some of like like the you know post-socialists like kind of hopefuls that there would be some kind i guess this is sort of liberal but like that there that there could be like like i don't know like a post-communist soviet union or something like you know the, the or, you know, some kind of like a supranational body that would have outlived the Soviet Union in a, in a sort of European Union kind of way. Like the, I guess these, they're also another form of neoliberal institutionalists that are just more politically than economically like obsessed. Like they just like gloriously misread the situation. And some of the, some of the kind of like moderating of, you know, fears of nationalism here kind of read as antiquated because of how virulent the forms of nationalism that exist now seem to be. But I guess, you know, the charitable read is that like the dialectical take that the author's making that look like you're going to have to work with these like kind of softened reformer versions of nationalism if you don't want the virulent strains and, you know, essentially that has failed. Like that that didn't come to pass, even if in the elections that she's analyzing, you know, there were decisive victories against some of the more virulent nationalisms at the time. So um, I don't know. There's an optimism here that in 2020 doesn't feel exactly warranted, but all the same, like it does resonate with the themes of the book. And like kind of reading these last musings and standing back and looking at everything that she's connected, you have to be in awe of the author and her intellect and how much like, I don't know, how much like power, brain power and, you know, just really, I don't know, uh, spiritual commitment must have went into putting this text together to, to be so against the grain at the time it was written. Is, yeah, the, um, it's staggering. There's even a section where she talks about like the relationship between like identity politics and people's concerns about like job insecurity and stuff like that. Yeah, and yeah. Really like degenerate into this very like illiberal uh, <coughs> cultural moment. Uh, yeah, there, and that's just like kind of almost like a throwaway paragraph in the middle of this last section. Um, but yeah, towards the end, she's basically saying, um, you know, if and she's I think she's mainly talking about Eastern Europe. Yeah, if we just like write this off as a bunch of 
we ref if we refuse to take sides in any of this and just write this off as uh, these are just a bunch of uh, history list people who have this these crazy uh, sectarian concerns that we just need to keep at arm's length and not engage with at all. Right, uh, right. You're probably right. just you're asking for trouble. <laughs> uh, yeah. And even if it didn't end out the way she presented it, as it hopefully could have done, I think she's right to have said that. And possibly some of the ways it turned out quite badly can be put down to a failure on some of the more like soft nationalist types of a field or a form criterion laid out well, perhaps. Well, here, here's the problem though. Uh, and the reason why you kind of get these like virulent nationalism because it's, it's like they do like, who's going to pay for it. Who's going to pay to re repair any of these like deeper set social problems. Who's going to, it's, it's much cheaper to just like stoke these, stoke these national. Yeah. Stoke these sentiments, let people identify with these, like, let people identify with these uh, mm. differing national communities and use that to gin things up so that we can paper over the fact that, yeah, like society in a lot of places has dissolved for a variety of reasons uh, or is in the process of disillusion. And uh, nobody, the rich people, that suits them perfectly fine. They're, yeah. they're sitting pretty. They're getting richer than they've ever gotten. So is there, is no, there is no material incentive to... Uh, do the kind of work here that she's talking about. You need uh, what Marx and Engels latched onto as the primary vehicle for social change. You need an organized working class. Mm. Uh, yeah. So I, th yeah. I feel like her her effort, uh, as well constructed as it is, to port this over as something that like li some liberal policymaker can look at and use uh, to make like better geostrategic decisions uh, to protect like democracy and the war of the world. That's ultimately a fool's errand. That's yeah. never going to happen, uh, but I'm, it's immensely useful for us. For us, uh, it opens up a lot of things, and yeah, this is one of those texts that opens up a lot of potential new avenues and perspectives on stuff that um, yeah. seems like it was almost kind of set in stone by what we understood about the discourse. But going back to the original text, you see how open-ended Marx and Engels' thought was, and how rather than you know, maybe constantly looking back to, you know, like the wise and masters of yesteryear, it's okay to understand the, the radical contingency of history and not be afraid to want to steer things in a certain way mm -hmm. and not look for these like ancient formulas as like a guidebook to contemporary action. A hundred percent. You know what I mean? You see what I'm saying? Like the, mm -hmm. it's, the, yeah, yeah. it's the, it's the pamphlet brain, like what is to be done shit that people, you know, try and like turn Lenin's text into. Oh yeah, well that you know Lenin did a good job of turning his works into in 1920. But yes, like the um, the the note that <clears throat> excuse me, the note that she actually ends on is actually totally prescient and like you know her plea essentially for like a decent form of national like of articulation of national political sentiment as a way of basically heading off extreme nationalism is like is 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 justified by what she calls these uh further two further reasons that you know you know besides being locked in a life or death struggle of you know extreme nationalism versus reforming nationalism versus you know some kind of honorable expression um i'm just gonna read this off this is the last paragraph this is chilling. 
Um, so there are two further reasons why Democrats need to clarify their conditions under which they will or will not support nationalists and to shed their reservations about enforcing those conditions. First, the freedoms enjoyed even in long established democratic societies are probably far more fragile than we used to think. The comforting contrast between the free and unfree worlds has been eroded by the end of the Cold War, forcing Western societies to confront the insecurities and deprivations that threaten freedom from within. Memories of our very own ancient rivalries may have lost their sting by now, but we can't be certain that new currents of extremist nationalism will not gain momentum if insecurities deepen, jobs keep disappearing, and more and more people begin to doubt their own social worth. Second, by spelling out their conditions, Democrats will have taken a crucial step towards politicizing national conflicts. <clears throat> Political discussion cannot begin until each side has laid down its bottom line, however tentatively. When democracy's avowed friends confront extreme nationalism with wide open minds, they invite both contempt and resentment. They invite contempt because by failing to put, to put a firm foot down to defend what they claim to value, they make themselves vulnerable. They invite resentment because in refusing to enforce a bottom line, democratic governments seem to convey indifference to nationalist claims. If we refrain from making judgments or refuse to take sides, we appear to be saying, they are not our kind. Their conflicts are a sort that we can't possibly understand. Our civilized norms of conduct do not apply to such people. So as long as they don't drop bombs on us, let's leave them to tear each other apart or to fall back in the clutches of some equally wretched empire, which will at least save us from the trouble of brokering a peace. Save us the trouble of brokering a peace it is most unlikely that the lessons of democratic indifference will be lost on other nationalists and aspiring empire builders. Indifference means non-recognition. And in a democratic era, when individuals and peoples are taught to protest against slights to their dignity, this is the, that is the greatest provocation of all. I mean, particularly the, the first part about like freedoms being uh, eroded, you know, by uh, the simple free and free distinction of the cold war. And, the way that like Democrats can really be idiots when it comes to extreme nationalism. I mean, especially if you, I don't know, if you capitalize the D in Democrats, that mm. really, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Well, so, yeah. And also, yeah. Yeah. Just their utter inability to. Yeah. If you capitalize the D in Democrats, you can see how playing with fire doing this like Russiagate thing is and this frothing at the mouth, like is frankly xenophobic, like invocation of Russia as being purely behind Trump as a way to, you know, defend the national honor against its own institutional realities is very, very dangerous and is much more likely the road to a kind of Bonapartism than whatever like right wing coup we're afraid of. Yeah, well, and it's like the whole thing, like, for instance, political discussion cannot begin until each side is laid down its bottom line, however tentatively. Like, that's that's not going to happen here. Um, what you really have is this uh, dialogue of bad faith. There's no, because you have the ruling class, at least in the United States, the political parties serve the interests of the ruling elites and of reproducing capital. And that doesn't really have anything to offer most people in like a fundamental bottom line way. So, you, yeah. And if you lay that down, like you're just going to get like 
massive di- like what their entire thing has to be to convince people that you have some stake in this debate whether it's through some kind of like vague wedge issue or whether it's basically fear of the other people um like this party's going to do this or that party's going to do that so you have to vote to make sure they don't do the bad thing like that's the entire basis of like our political discourse and it's no wonder that it's, it's so insane and filled with like bad faith and mutual suspicion um yeah and that's again that comes down to it comes down to the fact that they just don't have anything to offer people and there's no like working class force which was the vehicle that not only shaped the way it shaped the way Marx and Engels thought about this thing because that's who all this political thought was for it wasn't just for some like abstract reader good it was for like the working class specifically to achieve like its historic mission <laughs> so uh, absent that this doesn't really port over in the same way and you know you need that framework in order to explain why it doesn't I think what this book's really clearly presented is both a matrix for understanding when and how you should support a national movement or a national liberation movement or how you want to frame it, but also what it means to have a national working class movement that doesn't fall into the trap of nationalism that doesn't allow itself to be hijacked by these resent these politics of resentment or these politics of simply a negative program offered by the work the ruling class of an identity and some benefits to go along with it what you need to order to actually hijack that idea for the working class without well still with a view to go beyond it and go beyond the framing of the nation that's it for this week uh, big thanks to Nick for sitting in for this uh, rather lengthy breakdown of Erica Banner's book, but uh, it's quite good, and I think there's a lot to cover. Uh, next episode, we will begin a reading series with Tom O'Brien from from Alpha to Omega. We're going to be looking at the text uh, "Fundamental Principles of Communist Production and Distribution." This was a pretty big patron request, uh, so there's going to be a lot of talk about time chits and about planning and uh, workers' councils and all those things could interrelate in a communist society so that's going to be interesting uh, if you want to get hold of us you can uh, send us an email swampsidechats at gmail.com or hit us up somewhere on social media uh, we'll try to get back to you in a reasonably timely fashion uh, if you want to support the show uh, consider subscribing to our Patreon um, or you know just uh, tell your friends about it you know uh, you know get a sign write the name of the show on it and like wave it outside in the sidewalk uh, you know use your imagination uh, so until next time keep your boots clean your feet out of the swamp and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow <laughs>